All right, you are in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read a very familiar verse together. And uh, in fact, it's going to be on the screen for you. So I want to invite you, whether you're reading from your Bible or reading from the screen, just read this out loud with me, okay? You ready? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. How many of you have heard that before? A variation of it, at least, right? What you want to have other people do to you, that is what you do to them. Now, a lot of times we think that this is, this is something that's really unique for Christianity, but it's not. In fact, all of the major religions have some form of the golden rule. Um, you got, you got Buddhism, you have Hinduism, you have Islam, Judaism. All of these have some form of this golden rule where if you just treat other people a certain way, then you could expect to be treated back that way. Or you treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. And really, this is, this is not surprising at all because when you think about many of these world religions that are so works-based, where if I do this and this and this and this, and if I just treat other people the way I would want to be treated, then God will be happy with me, or I get a better eternity than I have here on this earth. But what we're going to find today as we work through this golden rule, both in this passage and another passage we're going to look at, what we're going to find is that, um, is that this goes a whole lot deeper for the Christian than just, I'll do this and you do this. It goes a whole lot deeper because of what God has done for us, and we're to use the example of what he has done in the way that we deal with other people. We're going to talk about that here in just a couple of moments. Well, let's, let's break this down, okay? First word there in, in verse 12, the word so, all right? Anytime we get to the word so at the beginning of a sentence or the word therefore at the, end, or at the beginning of a sentence, what we do is we go back to see why is this word here? Why is this word here? So the word so is there. So whatever you wish that others would do to you. John Wycliffe, in, um, in his commentary about this passage, he spoke about the word so in this way. He says that a good God gives good things to his people. In fact, if you go back and look at the verses that Pastor Rick and, and Pastor Dwayne preached through last Sunday, one of the things you're going to see is that God does know how to give good gifts to his people, Right? So if God gives good gifts to his people, and honestly, if you look at us, we are inherently evil. Yeah, we're we're saved by grace through faith. Um, Yes, we have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we're still still fallible, and we're still cursed by, by sin. But if God knows how to give good gifts to his people... And we see the way that he gives those gifts to us, then we are to treat others the same way that God treats us. That's really where this passage is going. Uh, Sometimes you'll see this golden rule up in a classroom. It's a classroom slogan, right? Do to others as you would have them do unto you. Or maybe, um, maybe it it is an excuse to condemn somebody else's mistreatment of us. So somebody does something to us and, and we can condemn them by saying, you know what, um, I, 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 you should do to me what you want done to yourself. But when we think about this, this idea of just a, just a classroom slogan, a simple statement, y'all, this thing goes a whole lot deeper than that. 
The way this works is that God treats us with goodness. He saved us, right? We, we didn't deserve it. He treats us with goodness, and in the same way, we are to treat others with goodness. The next words there are, whatever you wish. <clears throat> so whatever you wish that others would do to you. So is that an action? Is that a word? Is that an attitude? Is that the way we approach life as a whole? Whatever it is. It's not this and this and this and this. No, it's whatever you wish that others would do to you. And I want to make a distinction here because I really think that a lot of people read this and they, and they think that we're to treat others with goodness so that they will in turn treat us with goodness. Right? I fall into that trap a lot of times. If I just treat other people the way that I would want to be treated, then naturally they're going to treat me the way that I want to be treated. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. The reason for this, this golden rule is to simply reflect God and his goodness toward us. And one of the ways that we gauge our success and how we treat other people is through simply thinking about, am I treating them the way that I would want to be treated or the way that I have been treated? He continues, for this is the law and the prophets. For this is the law and the prophets. All of the Sermon on the Mount is, is taking what was taught in the Old Testament and casting it through a gospel lens. Remember Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter into, heaven, into the kingdom of heaven. He continued on to show us what that righteousness looks like all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is saying here that, that this principle of the golden rule summarizes the, the essential teachings of all of the Old Testament law and all the Old Testament prophets. So in order to live a life that is pleasing to God, live in such a way that you would want others to live in reference to you. All along, Jesus has been showing us over and over and over again that it is his righteousness alone that allows us into the kingdom of heaven. And we cannot, we cannot have communion with God, a relationship with God apart from him and his righteousness. Now, next week when we come back together, we're going to spend some more talking about this, some more time talking about this idea of, of building off of the golden rule and about salvation in general. Um, how it is obtained, how God is pleased with us in salvation. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that next week. But what I want to do today and the rest of the time that we've got together is actually go over to Philippians chapter 2. So take your Bibles and now go to Philippians chapter 2. And what I want to do in these moments is, is kind of give us a gospel-centered framework for the golden rule. A gospel-centered framework for the golden rule. Once we get to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> this is Paul teaching, and, and here's what he says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, have the, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're going to use this passage to kind of give us a, a gospel-centered framework for the golden rule. Now, when I use the term gospel-centered, what I mean is that, that we are taking the good news of Jesus, the story of Jesus, and we are making it central. Everything builds out from there. So when we get to Philippians chapter 2 here, what does it look like for us to live out the golden rule in light of the gospel? And we've got several principles here that you can write down as we go through here, okay? First of all, strive for unity. Verse 2, we find that. Strive for unity. If you go back to verse 1, um, you see the words if. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any, any comfort from love. A better translation of that is because. So because there is encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in spirit, affection and sympathy, then now, because there are those things, we are to do these things. Number two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being of full accord and of one mind. We strive for unity. Church, the greatest way I believe that God receives the glory for the church is us being unified pulling together in the same direction. Now, what that does not mean is that we all think the same way and even oftentimes believe the same way or think that it should happen a certain way. What it means is that we believe that the Holy Spirit has unified us together as a church. We link arms and we're going the same direction. Earlier on the screen, it was when Annette was giving the announcement, she said what we often say, the church is God's plan A for fulfilling the Great Commission. We pull together in unity to go accomplish the Great Commission. All right, so first of all, what we see here is this idea of striving for unity. Striving for unity. All right, number two, we see holy, not selfish ambition. Holy, not selfish ambition. In verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I want to break down this idea of, of ambition for just a moment and the idea of conceit. Because this really, really speaks to this idea of the golden rule. It says first there, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. You know what selfish ambition is? It's pushing other people down. It's looking at yourself as I am here and I'm going to do everything I can to climb the ladder and I'm going to put other people down in the process. This could be a word that's spoken. It could be an action as you are at work. It could be even in your family where you're trying to build yourself up and in your pride you push your kids down or your spouse down. Conceit is trying to build yourself up more than you should. 
Uh, some translations use the term vain conceit. In other words, you're trying to build yourself up, but for what? It's, it's all vain. There's no, there's no, all you're trying to do is make yourself look better than you really are. And Paul's command here is do nothing out of selfish ambition, so pushing other people down, or out of conceit, trying to build yourself up. He continues by saying, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. A picture of this that I can think of is, is um, my son Weston is four years old, and that kid <clears throat> sees more planes in the sky than I ever do. I mean, that kid can pick out planes, and our oldest, Colton, can tell you exactly what kind of plane is in the sky. Like he has all those models down and all that stuff, okay? I don't at all. But Weston notices those planes in the sky, and one day as I was outside with Weston, I realized I know now why he sees those planes in the sky. It's because he's this tall and I'm this tall. And so often I'm looking down at Weston and he's looking up at me. And what does he see? He sees the planes in the sky. I love this picture. It's this idea of looking at other people as more important than you, looking up at other people, trying to build other people up, raising them up to a level that is above you. And when you do that, your view of the world and your view of of life and of Christianity, all of that, your view completely changes. You see a lot more. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Number three, others minded. Others minded. It's a part of this framework for the golden rule. We're to be others-minded. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So I'm not worrying just about what I've got going on or what I'm dealing with. I'm more concerned with other people and making sure that they are taken care of. There's a few people that I have met over the years that when I met them, there was no doubt whatsoever that they cared more about me than they cared about themselves. And there's probably more than a few. There's one in particular that I met several years ago, and, and this, was a, this is a, um, <clears throat> a fantastic author. He has he's sold um, more books than, than I could ever know. Um, I had the opportunity just to, just to sit down and talk with him, and from the very second that he met me, he was treating me like I was vastly more important than he was. And I'll never forget that. We know when other people are treating us better than they're treating themselves. There's a, there's a plaque that I was given, it was as a gift from Danita Carson back some time ago, several years ago. And there's a story behind this plaque. It says others on the front of it. There's a story behind it, and in fact, it's a label back here with the story. So I'm going to hold this up, and I'm going to read this story in talking about this idea of others-minded. And this appeared, this is a, an article that appeared in the News in Advance in Lynchburg, Virginia. It was written by Danita Carson. It appeared back in 1999. She says, My father came home from work one day when we were very young, carrying a 6-inch by 15-inch wooden plaque that simply said, 
others. Little did I know that my whole outlook was about to, to take shape, forming a base to build my life upon. He hung that plaque over our kitchen door. It was almost impossible to walk out of our house without first seeing that plaque. It may have just been one word, but it spoke volumes to my brother, sister, and me. Why? Because our father lived that word. He always thought of others first. He wasn't a doctor or politician, or at that point in his life, even a successful businessman, though he became one later. No, he was an ordinary man with an extraordinary gift, the ability to look beyond himself to others. Here was a man with an eighth grade education, a farmer working in a boatyard to make ends meet, but still willing to see and meet needs in others. Sometimes this gift was manifested in big ways, like the time a friend lost four fingers in a corn picker and dad volunteered to milk cows for him twice a day while still doing his own work. Sometimes it was shown in a small way, like the time he paid for four teenagers ice cream because they changed seats at a restaurant so that our group could sit together. He showed it to his children in passing on his knowledge and faith. The whole concept of putting others first is a biblical one. He took us to church and introduced us to Jesus Christ, our Savior. He explained in word and deed the importance of living our faith. You know, putting others first and being others-minded doesn't have to be a big deal. It just comes across in the little things that we do. In the small things. So when Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others... Yes, yeah, sometimes it can be big things. But I would argue that most of the time it's just the little tiny decisions that we make on a daily basis. Number four, we see Christ's example in this. And I'm going to read verses five through eight here, okay, and break it down a little bit. But it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in this, we're going to have a few points that kind of go underneath this main point, but we see that humility starts in the mind. Humility starts in the mind. In verse 5, first part of verse 5, it says, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. Humility does not start in the outward actions. It starts in the mind and then it flows out from there. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 says, set your mind on things above, not on things below. You see, the apostle Paul knew how important it was to set your mind on what is right and then let it flow, your life flow out from that. Paul talks about the importance of, of, of thinking when it comes to having a humble mind in Romans chapter 12 verse 3. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In other words, be honest with yourself. You're not that great. I'm not that great. So be realistic. Next, humility comes from Jesus. The last part of verse five. This is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was in heaven, okay, before he came to earth. He was in heaven, in all of the glory of heaven. And yet, he made the decision to come to this earth 
to let go of who he was as the second part of the Trinity and to live among men. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. We continue, we see that humility requires servanthood. It requires servanthood, verse 7. But what did he do? He emptied himself. This is what we call the kenosis passage. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I don't have time to take you there today, but John chapter 13, we find Jesus in the upper room the day before he's going to be killed. And what does he do? He, he takes off his outer garment, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he goes to each one of his disciples, and what does he do? He washes their feet. God becomes a servant. The master becomes the slave. That's the kind of attitude, that's the kind of mindset, that's the kind of lifestyle that God is calling us to have. Where we don't view ourselves here, but we see ourselves here. And then humility demands our all in verse 8. Being found in human form, still talking about the example of Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. But it wasn't just obedient to the point of death. It was obedient to the point of death on a cruel, shameful cross. That is the level of servanthood, humility that Jesus has. It's not just that he became human. That in itself was enough shame. But deeper than that, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what am I to do in return except give him my everything? I think about that song. When I survey the wondrous cross on which, I, on which the prince of glory died, my richest gains, so everything I could build for myself, I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were every realm of nature mine, so if I owned everything, my gift would still be far too small because love so amazing, so divine, what does it do? It demands my soul, my life, my all. I think about Jesus and the humility that he had. And that is to be the example that I follow and the example that I then give to a watching world. And then in verses 9 through 11, we see the result, which is the glory of God. Therefore, because Jesus has done this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, this is what it's all about. Glory to God. God receiving glory. So when Jesus followed God's command, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he gave us an example to follow, and now we follow that example to go out so that we can give glory to God. There is nothing in this world that's more important than the glory of God. I want you to sing a song with me, okay? It's a song that you know. 
How great, come on, I am. Gotcha. And we sing that song, How Great Is Our God. Sing with me, How Great Is Our God. And it's easy to do sometimes. It's easy to give lip service to that. And all the while we're singing, How Great Kiv It Is. Y'all come on, sing with me. <laughs> How Great Kiv It Is. How Great. I'll stop. But how often do we live that way with our lives? You know, we got this, we got this golden rule that Jesus puts out there. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. We've got this example that Jesus, that, that Paul lays out for us of being unified, of, of, of following Jesus' example in humility. It, it's like we, we know and we can sing how great is our God and there's no one like him and that there's, there's no way that I could ever measure, uh, measure up. But then so often we live with our lives how great I am. When we're not. So I would just challenge you this morning in a very simple way, a very simple way, to think about the greatness of God the example of humility that's found in Jesus Christ, and then to follow him in that humility. Why? So that a watching world will see and give glory to our God. That's the why. Father, I know without a doubt that I don't have the ability to live in such a way that gets rid of my pride completely. But also, Father, I know because your word is so clear and because it's been proven over and over and over again that I am nothing and that you are everything. So, Father, like Jesus, help me to put aside my preferences and my pride and what I want in life for your glory. Help me to hold none of it for my own, but rather pass it all to you. And Father, in that, I pray that the watching world around me, around our church, will come to know Jesus as their Savior because of our example, the way we live out our lives. Father, thank you for your word and for the way we've been able to just dive into it today and see what it looks like to honor you in humility. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.